0: The law school of America. The purposive approach, sometimes referred to as purposivism, purpose of construction, purpose of interpretation, or the modern principle in construction, is an approach to statutory and constitutional interpretation under which common law courts interpret an enactment, a statute, part of a statute, or a clause of a constitution, within the context of the law's purpose. Purpose of interpretation is a derivation of the mischief rule set in Hayden's case, and intended to replace the mischief rule, the plain meaning rule and the golden rule. Purpose of interpretation is used when the courts use extraneous materials from the pre-enactment phase of legislation, including early drafts, hansards, committee reports, and white papers. The purpose of interpretation involves a rejection of the exclusionary rule. Israeli jurist Aharon Barak views purposive interpretation as a legal construction that combines elements of the subjective and objective. Barak states that the subjective elements include the intention of the author of the text, whereas the objective elements include the intent of the reasonable author and the legal system's fundamental values. Critics of purposivism argue it fails to separate the powers between the legislator and the judiciary, as it allows more freedom in interpretation by way of extraneous materials in interpreting the law. Historical Origins Plain Meaning Rule The plain meaning rule gained popularity during the 18th and 19th centuries as the courts took an increasingly strict view of the words within statutes. Under the plain meaning rule, the words of the statute are given their natural or ordinary meaning. The plain meaning rule of statutory interpretation should be the first rule applied by judges. One of the leading statements of the plain meaning rule was made by Chief Justice Nicholas Cunningham Tyndall in the Sussex Peerage case, 1844 concerning whether Augustus d'Este succeeded to the titles of his father Prince Augustus Frederick, Duke of Sussex, in particular whether the marriage of his father and mother was valid under the Royal Marriages Act 1772. The only rule for the construction of Acts of Parliament is that they should be construed according to the intent of the Parliament which passed the Act. If the words of the statute are in themselves precise and unambiguous, then no more can be necessary than to expound those words in their natural and ordinary sense the words themselves alone do, in such a case, best declare the intention of the lawgiver. Strict application of the plain-meaning rule can sometimes result in absurd outcomes. Examples of the plain-meaning rule producing absurd outcomes can be seen in the following cases. In Whiteley v. Chapel, 1868, a statute made it an offense to impersonate any person entitled to vote. The defendant used the vote of a dead man. The statute relating to voting rights required a person to be living in order to be entitled to vote. The plain meaning rule was applied and the defendant was thus acquitted. In R. V. Harris, 1836, the defendant had bitten off his victim's nose. But because the statute made it an offense to stab cut or wound the court held that under the plain meaning rule the act of biting did not come within the meaning of stab cut or wound as these words implied an instrument had to be used. The defendant's conviction was overturned. In Fisher v. Bell, 1961, the Restriction of Offensive Weapons Act 1958 made it an offense to offer for sale an offensive weapon. The defendant had a flick knife displayed in his shop window with a price tag on it. Statute made it a criminal offense to offer such flick knives for sale. His conviction was overturned as goods on display in shops are not offers in the technical sense but an invitation to treat. The court applied the plain meaning rule of statutory interpretation. Golden Rule. The Golden Rule permits the courts to depart from the plain meaning rule if the meaning leads to consequences it considers to be absurd or ambiguous. This was propounded in Gray v. Pearson 1857, where Lord Wensleydale stated In construing statutes, the grammatical and ordinary sense of the words is to be adhered to, unless that would lead to some absurdity, or some repugnance or inconsistency with the rest of the instrument, in which case the grammatical and ordinary sense of the words may be modified so as to avoid the absurdity and inconsistency, but no farther. The degree of absurdity or ambiguity necessary to exercise the golden rule is determined on a case-by-case basis by the individual judge in question. There are two general situations in which the golden rule may be employed, narrowly, to take the better reading of two alternatives, or more widely, to broaden a rule that, although unambiguous, leads to an absurd outcome. The case casematics v. Store is typical of the more narrow use. In Maddox, the Defender had been traveling at over the 30-mile-per-hour speed limit in a minibus with 11 seats, excluding that of the driver, most of which were unoccupied. Per the Road Traffic Act 1960 traveling at over 30 miles per hour in a vehicle adapted to carry more than seven passengers was an offense. It was held that adapted to could be taken to mean suitable for. The court applies the golden rule in a wider sense in Adler v. George, 1964. Under the Official Secrets Act 1920 it was an offense to obstruct a member of the armed forces in the vicinity of a prohibited place. The defendant was actually in the prohibited place, rather than in the vicinity of it, at the time of obstruction. The courts had to determine whether in vicinity of included on slash in the premises. The court applied the golden rule. The court said that in the vicinity did include on or in as well. It would be absurd for a person to be liable if they were near to a prohibited place and not if they were actually in it. The defendant's conviction was therefore upheld. In rees 1935, a son had murdered his mother. Under Slayer or forfeiture rules of long-standing in the United Kingdom, he would have been excluded as beneficiary under her will. She had, however, died intestate, and the Administration of Justice Act 1925 provided that her next of kin would inherit. Although the situation was unambiguous. The absurdity inherent in such a situation meant that forfeiture had to be treated as applicable to intestacy rules taking the place of a will as well as wills themselves. Mischief Rule. In construction of statutes, Elmer Dreiger defines the mischief rule as follows. A statute is to be so construed as to suppress the mischief and advance the remedy, thus giving the courts considerable latitude in achieving the objective of the legislature despite any inadequacy in the language employed by it. Hayden's Case. 1584 laid out the following statement of the principles underlying what would come to be called the mischief rule for the sure and true interpretation of all statutes four things are to be discerned and considered first what was the common law before the making of the act second what was the mischief and defect for which the common law did not provide third what remedy the parliament hath resolved and appointed to cure the disease of the commonwealth fourth the true reason of the remedy and then the office of all the judges is always to make such construction as shall suppress the mischief, and advance the remedy, and to suppress subtle inventions and evasions for continuance of the mischief, and pro privato commodo, and to add force and life to the cure and remedy, according to the true intent of the makers of the act, pro bono publico. The mischief rule saw further development in Porkery v. Carpenter, 1951. In a decision of the Court of King's Bench, the court had to decide whether a bicycle could be classified as a carriage. According to Section 12 of the Licensing Act 1872, a person found drunk in charge of a carriage on the highway can be arrested without a warrant. A man was arrested drunk in charge of a bicycle. According to the plain meaning rule, a bike is not a carriage. Under the mischief rule, the bicycle could constitute a carriage. The mischief the Act was attempting to remedy was that of people being on the road on transport while drunk. Therefore, a bicycle could be classified as a carriage. In Smith v. Hughes, 1960, the defendant was charged under the Street Offenses Act 1959 which made it an offense to solicit prostitution in a public place. The defendant was soliciting from within private premises, windows or on balconies, so they could be seen by the public without entering into the streets. The court applied the mischief rule holding that the activities of the defendant was within the mischief of the act, and soliciting from within a house, is soliciting and molesting of the public. Therefore, it is the same as if the defendant was outside on the street in Royal College of Nursing of the UK v DHSS 1981 the Royal College of Nursing brought an action challenging the legality of the involvement of nurses in carrying out abortions the offences against the person act 1861 made it an offence for any person to carry out an abortion the abortion act 1967 provides an absolute defence for a medical practitioner provided certain well-known conditions are satisfied Discoveries in medicine men's surgery has more often been replaced with administration of hormones, commonly by nurses. The courts were responsible for determining whether they were acting unlawfully, not being medical practitioners as defined under the Act. The courts found that the Act was intended to provide for safe abortions and that nurses could carry out such abortions. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Aids to Interpretation. Internal Aids to Statute Interpretation. Generally, Prima facie must be given as a general rule of statutory interpretation. If the words are clear and free from ambiguity there is no need to refer to other means of interpretation. However, if the words in the statute are vague and ambiguous, then internal aid may be consulted for interpretation. This means the statute should be read in whole, what is not clear in one section may be explained in another section. Internal aids include the following. Context Title Long Title Short title. Preamble. Headings. Proviso. Definition-slash-interpretation clause. Conjunctive and disjunctive words, and. Punctuation. External aids to statute interpretation. Aids that are external to a statute, for example, not part of an act, can also be used as recourse. External aids include the following. Historical settings. Objects and reason. Textbooks and dictionaries. International Convention. Government Publications. Committee Reports. Other Documents. Bill. Select Committee Report. Debate and Proceedings of the Legislature. State of Things at the Time of the Passing of the Bill. History of Legislation. Extemporaneous Exposition and Judicial Interpretation of Words. Middle. United States. American Jurist Henry M. Hart, Jr and Albert Sachs, are considered early proponents of American purposivism. Their work helped to promote purposivism as a credible method of interpretation. Purposivism in the United States is considered a strain of originalism, alongside textualism and intentionalism. While the current focus of the interpretation debate is between textualism and intentionalism, the less popular purposivism is gaining favor. Purposivism in the United States is used to interpret a statute with broadly worded text and a seemingly clear purpose. When employing purposivism, the court is concerned with understanding the purpose or spirit of the law. Once the purpose is identified, the text is then read accordingly. In order to determine and interpret the purpose of a statute, courts may consult extraneous aids. The following extraneous aids have been ranked from least authoritative to most authoritative, subsequent history non-legislator proponents of drafters, rejected proposals, colloquy on floor and hearing, sponsor statements and committee reports. Each of these extraneous aides are given a corresponding weight to their position in the hierarchical ranking. The academic literature indicates several variations of purposivism. For example Abbeigluck said there are different stripes of purposivists. Jennifer M. Bandy stated, Thus, Justice Breyer's strain of purposivism focuses on understanding the law in relation to both the people who passed it and the people who must live with it. Degrees of purposivism are sometimes referred to as strong or weak. As the court's leading purposivist Justice Stephen Breyer considers determining and interpreting the purpose of a statute paramount. An apt example of Breyer's approach might be his dissent in Mayday v. Texas. 2008, where he faulted the court's construction of a treaty because it looks for the wrong thing, explicit textual expression about self-execution, using the wrong standard, clarity, in the wrong place, the treaty language, in response, the court confessed that we do think it rather important to look to the treaty language to see what it has to say about the issue. That is after all what the Senate looks to in deciding whether to approve the treaty. As opposed to Justice Breyer's strong form of purposivism weak purposivists might consult the statute's purpose only as a device for interpreting vague provisions of its text, and in no circumstances to override the text. Canada. Statutory Interpretation. In Canada, the purposive approach was developed and expanded by Elmer Dreiger in his 1974 book, The Construction of Statutes. Dreiger referred to this approach not as purposive, but as the modern principle of statutory interpretation. This approach has since been endorsed by the Supreme Court of Canada in a number of cases, and is now the dominant approach to statutory interpretation. In Rizzo and Rizzo Shoes Limited, Justice Jacob Bucci, speaking for the whole court, wrote the following Elmer Dreiger in Construction of Statutes, 2nd edition. 1983, best encapsulates the approach upon which I prefer to rely. He recognizes that statutory interpretation cannot be founded on the wording of the legislation alone. At p. 87 he states, Today there is only one principle or approach, namely, the words of an Act are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the Act, the object of the Act, and the intention of Parliament. Justice Iacobucci went on to cite Section 10 of Ontario's Quasi-Constitutional Interpretation Act, which stated, Every Act shall be deemed to be remedial, and shall accordingly receive such fair." large and liberal construction and interpretation is will best ensure the attainment of the object of the Act according to its true intent, meaning and spirit. Similar provisions exist in the Interpretation Act of each province of Canada as well as at the federal level. The purpose of approach was reinforced in Bell Express View Limited Partnership v. Rex, where Justice Iacobucci, again for the whole Court, reiterated that Dryager's rule is the overarching approach to statutory interpretation in Canada. Other philosophies, such as a strict interpretation of penal statutes, may apply in the case of an ambiguity, but only in the case of an ambiguity that arises following the application of the modern rule. The Supreme Court ruling in Free World Trust v. Electrosante Incorporated set out the test for patent infringement and the principles of purpose of claim construction. Constitutional interpretation, purpose of interpretation, is also used in constitutional interpretation. In R v. Big M Drug Mart Limited. Justice Dixon, speaking for the majority of the court, wrote, at paragraph 116, The proper approach to the definition of the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Charter was a purposive one. The meaning of the right or freedom guaranteed by the Charter was to be ascertained by an analysis of the purpose of such a guarantee, it was to be understood, in other words, in the light of the interests it was meant to protect. In my view this analysis is to be undertaken and the purpose of the right or freedom in question is to be sought by reference to the character and the larger objects of the Charter itself, to the language chosen to articulate the specific right or freedom, to the historical origins of the concepts enshrined, and where applicable, to the meaning and purpose of the other specific rights and freedoms with which it is associated within the text of the Charter. The interpretation should be, a generous rather than a legalistic one. Aimed at fulfilling the purpose of the guarantee and securing for individuals the full benefit of the Charter's protection. At the same time, it is important not to overshoot the actual purpose of the right or freedom in question, but to recall that the Charter was not enacted in a vacuum, and must therefore be placed in its proper linguistic, philosophic, and historical contexts. England. A 1969 report of the English Law Commission proposed that the English courts should adopt a purposive approach. That endorsement did much to boost the profile and credibility of the approach, but several decades would still pass before it would win acceptance outside of narrow fields of English law, such as estoppels and absurdities, enshrined by cases such as the Earl of Oxford's case, 1615. The leading case in which the purpose of approach was adopted by the House of Lords was Pepper v. Hart. This established the principle that when primary legislation is ambiguous, and certain criteria are satisfied, courts may refer to statements made in the House of Commons or the House of Lords to determine the intended meaning of the legislation. Before the ruling, such an action would have been seen as a breach of parliamentary privilege. The House of Lords held that courts could now take a purposive approach to interpreting legislation when the traditional methods of statutory construction are in doubt or would result in an absurdity. To determine what Parliament intended, all sources including Hansard may be consulted. Lord Griffiths stated. My Lords, I have long thought that the time had come to change the self-imposed judicial rule that forbade any reference to the legislative history of an enactment as an aid to its interpretation. The ever-increasing volume of legislation must inevitably result in ambiguities of statutory language which are not perceived at the time the legislation is enacted. The object of the court in interpreting legislation is to give effect so far as the language permits to the intention of the legislature. If the language proves to be ambiguous, I can see no sound reason not to consult Hansard to see if there is a clear statement of the meaning that the words were intended to carry. The days have long passed when the courts adopted a strict constructionist view of interpretation which required them to adopt the literal meaning of the language. The courts now adopt a purposive approach which seeks to give effect to the true purpose of legislation and are prepared to look at much extraneous material that bears upon the background against which the legislation was enacted. Why then cut ourselves off from the one source in which may be found an authoritative statement of the intention with which the legislation is placed before Parliament? The lowest school of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation, incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution. Share alike license